there is a discrepancy between the desires of voters in a democracy and a republic and the ideology of the bureaucracies that are supposed to serve the public interest. In this episode, I sit down with Christopher Rufo, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He has played a key role in bringing the fight against critical race theory into the public consciousness. In the 1960s, the radicals of the West took that idea of cultural revolution from China and they appropriated it and retrofitted it to fit the conditions and the politics of the West. We dive into his new book, America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. These are figures of death, and yet they see themselves still, despite all the evidence, as figures of life. Conservatives cannot merely retreat to private business, private life, and think that they're going to have a country that reflects their values. Conservatives have to get out of the corner. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Chris Rufo, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. It's good to be with you. I've been enjoying reading your book, but I don't think most, or I don't know if most, but many Americans are even aware that there's some kind of cultural revolution happening or certainly wouldn't call it that. Why don't we start there? How is this a cultural revolution, really? Yeah, I, I think Americans, many Americans, if not most Americans, have the, the intuitive sense that there is something happening, that our institutions are off kilter, that our culture is... Uh, somehow under attack from ideological forces. But it's very hard for most people to describe exactly what that is, to define it, and also to, 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 to get at its origins. Where did this come from? And so it's important to know a, a cultural revolution is, of course, an allusion to uh, China uh, in, in, in its own cultural revolution in the 1960s under, under Mao Zedong. Uh, but in the American context, and really in the Western context more broadly, it, in the 1960s, the radicals of the West took that idea of cultural revolution from China and they appropriated it and retrofitted it to fit uh, the conditions and the politics of the West. And so they believe that you first have to go after a culture of a country like the United States, and then only then can you change the politics of the country. And so um, whether it's on race, gender, identity, um, you know, uh, religion, you know, science, all of these uh, great themes have been undergoing um, significant changes, accelerating in 2020 after the George Floyd summer. Um, and the book is an attempt to explain what this is, to define it, and then to explain where it comes from, to trace its origins. It was really fascinating to me to learn about uh, Herbert Marcuse and kind of his his sort of beginnings and his thinking and how profoundly influential uh, he has been in fomenting, you know, everything that we're seeing today. But you actually identify four different people that you think are the sort of, I don't know, the, the godfathers or something of, of, of this whole ideology. But tell me about that. Yeah, so, so the book is separated into four parts. Uh, it covers uh, the theory of revolution, uh, race, education, and power. And each of these four parts is anchored by the biographical portrait of one of the key thinkers uh, from the 1960s uh, that really drove the left's uh, ideological development along those themes. And so Marcuse is the first, and I think he really deserves that primary placement because he was a, a German-American philosopher, the, the leader of a neo-Marxist school of thinking, and he became the grandfather for the so-called New Left, which was a coalition of student activists and Black Panther activists and Communist Party activists 
that were gaining in power and gaining in influence in the late 1960s, uh, he was their father figure. He was the person who legitimized and rationalized their ideas and impulses and then tried to guide them towards uh, you know, revolution in the West. And so everything comes from him and then trickles downward. Uh, the, the, the chapter on race is anchored by Angela Davis, who was actually Herbert Marcuse's graduate student. Then Paulo Freire, who um, uh, had some related but, but, but uh, uh, different ideas on how to apply neo-Marxist ideology to education. And then finally, Derek Bell, the founder of critical race theory. And of course, critical race theory is a nod to Herbert Marcuse's original critical theory. And so in total, these four figures um, give you a sense of, of where, for example, BLM ideology comes from, where, for example, much of the left-wing ideology in university departments comes from. And I think that it's important to, to put a human face on these ideas because these aren't just abstractions. These are actually real people in a specific time and place that are doing this intellectual work that's had such an influence on our society. I want to go back uh, for a moment to just my initial question, because I do talk to a lot of people out there, but they see it more as kind of a weird fad, or I, I, I think I would describe it that, rather than something that has been systemically growing over time and, sudden, and now is sort of so deeply embedded that we're seeing the surface manifestations. That's exactly right. And that's what's what's so important. And, and that's really the, the, the goal of this book, to give a reader a sense that this is not just a fad that spontaneously emerged in the summer of 2020 as people were posting their uh, black squares on Instagram. But in fact, this is part of a very conscious plan. Uh, it developed over the course of a half century. Uh, it has thousands of activists scattered across the, the United States, embedded in our institutions for decade after decade after decade. And they built this moment to its culmination point in 2020. But by no means was it by chance, by accident, uh, or by spontaneous design. This was uh, implemented. It was well thought through. And unfortunately, even though it may have receded in the public consciousness as we move further away from that summer of, of George Floyd, um, it's still deeply embedded administratively and bureaucratically in almost every major institution in the United States. So is this just communism in a different form? Is that what it is? It's slightly different. And, and I think that it, it, it's, that's not quite accurate because the old Marxist vision was to mobilize the proletariat, to seize the means of production, and then to create a classless society governed by the proletariat, right? So that's kind of a very basic uh, you know, one, two, three playbook of orthodox Marxism. By the 1960s, the smartest Marxist theoreticians understood that that was not going to happen. The proletariat was not an adequate revolutionary subject. Uh, they had no interest in seizing the means of production. They'd had no real serious plans to seize the Ford factory or the steel mill uh, or the other methods of industrial production. And they knew that they would not be able to um, overthrow the government and install a classless society that was governed horizontally by the people. Because the people uh, at the working class and middle class in the United States were not revolutionary. They were anti-revolutionary. They could not be trusted with that. And so they developed a totally new theory. And that theory, if you boil it down to its basics, has two parts. Their strategy was, was by the mid-1970s, no longer armed revolution. Their strategy was the long march through the institutions, meaning that they wanted to take influence over existing institutions by burrowing into them and then bringing the ideology in from the outside. 
Uh, and then their theory of revolution was no longer, uh, no longer necessitated seizing the means of industrial production, but seizing the means of cultural production. And so this is the shift from a total revolution in a, like in the Soviet Union um, to a lim more limited, um, but also you know, very insidious cultural revolution, meaning to take over the means of cultural production and transmission. So um, does it have lineage in Marxism and communism? Yes. Were some of the figures actually members of the Communist Party USA? Absolutely. But is their vision today one of unreconstructed or orthodox Marxism, communism, uh, not at all. I guess the, the, the big question, uh, I think, on a lot of people's minds, we see a lot, of, a lot of traditional social structures having kind of disintegrated to a greater or lesser extent. And that's kind of portrayed as a, a natural f factor of progress or something like this. But I think you make the case that this is a deliberate feature of this whole revolutionary process. Yeah, that, 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 that's right. And, and the first part of a cultural revolution, and Chairman Mao knew this, he wrote explicitly about this, um, and certainly today's cultural revolutionaries uh, in the United States and in the West more broadly understand this, um, you have to dissolve something before you can replace it. And so Marcuse said very explicitly, what we need to do is charge the negative side of the dialectic. We need to disrupt, dismantle, destabilize, um, all of those institutions that keep the status quo in place. And this is not just the economy, but it's the law, it's family, it's manners and mores, it's uh, you know, sexual habits. So uh, he, he believed that you should be uh, freeing yourself e even from all inhibitions on, on, on sex. This is you know, part of the plan. And, say, and, and to say that it is an unintended consequence, I think is, would be incorrect. It's actually um, merely a, a but, but to say that it's the end, you know, some people say, oh, well, this is what they want. They just want to destroy. Um, that's actually not quite true either. This is really just a means to an end. And so they, they, they believe that in, in what Marcuse called the power of negative thinking, which is kind of an ironic and humorous uh, phrase, but the idea that you, you, you first have to destroy in order to yield a utopia beyond. Of course, that's, that turns out not to be true. Their, their, their utopia uh, was unattainable. Their theory of human nature was uh, unrealistic. It was false. And so their methods actually um, don't get us to a utopia, but, but in a very real way, as I document in the book, at every turn, yield something uh, profoundly uh, unintended and, and profoundly uh, disastrous. A number of writers have written about how there seems to be an obsession in our culture. It's a kind of a radical uh, libertarianism of sorts uh, in terms of behavior. You know, for example, the reason why you you can't you know basically help someone who is a drug addict on the street is because you don't want to infringe on their rights, right? By actually preventing them from taking the drug that's going to kill them very shortly, most likely. I mean, that's, that's just one example. But this phenomenon is kind of replicated again and again. How does that fit in here? Yeah, I, I, that's, that's certainly a pattern that I've seen over and over, you know, on, on especially those issues that you're, you're, you're mentioning, you know, homelessness, addiction, you know, street crime, that kind of thing. Um, and, and I think that it, it also obtains here. It also applies to some of these other broader processes. And you know, if you look at these figures, the four figures that I profile in the book, Herbert Marcuse, Angela Davis, Paolo Ferreira, and Derek Bell, the founder of CRT, the godfather of CRT, rather, um, there is the, this great disconnect uh, between 
what they profess as their ideal and then the practical consequences of their ideas once they reach implementation. So defund the police is the, the kind of smaller cousin or, or, or little brother of, of Angela Davis' broader idea of abolishing prisons. So taking away the carceral system and then consequently taking away the policing system, living in a society uh, beyond police, beyond prisons. Um, I mean, this sounds fantastic. I would love to live in a society that had moved beyond policing, beyond prisons, beyond punishment, beyond guilt, um, beyond sin. Uh, but those who understand human nature um, and, and don't seek to deny human nature, but actually to conform society to human nature, understand that you know, sin, violence, injustice, uh, the necessity of restraint, um, uh, the necessity of, of separating um, uh, you know, violent, uh, the violent from, from the peaceful, for example, um, is baked into to, to the, to the nature of human society itself. Yes, we don't have to have prisons organized in the same way that we precisely do today. They were certainly different in the past. They will certainly be different in the future. But there is some necessity of, of, of what Foucault called discipline and punishment. Um, this is a universal human theme. And so to say we can abolish prisons today, empty the prisons and everything is going to be fine. Um, when we've done that, um, you find out actually that uh, the, the, the criminal, the uh, transgressor, the felon, the violent, um, uh, liberated from the prison, uh, becomes tyrannical once he's unleashed back into society. And so they have no understanding of this. For them, it's a collateral damage. It's a worthwhile, um, uh, it's a worthwhile expense uh, in pursuit of this dream. But I often think for those people who get their, their family members you know, butchered, murdered, shot, stabbed, bludgeoned upon the release of these, these criminals, it's cold comfort to them that perhaps in Angela Davis's abstract scheme, this is leading towards something better. It's like a bizarre misplacement of priorities almost or something like this. I'm thinking about this in the context of, for example, this idea of define, you know, a woman, you say you're a woman, you're a convicted rapist. You say you're a woman, you get put in a women's prison. That's happened multiple times. And, you know, very predictably, you know, you, you can expect what will happen under these such circumstances. And that is considered by people who are ideologically for this, I guess, collateral damage. Why would people accept this unless the purpose is purely to disrupt? Because, I, it, and, and this is a good question. So the, the, the question at heart uh, of what you're asking is, is this uh, cynical and intentional or is this unintended and tragic? Meaning that it is a reversal from desire and expectation. And this is something I wrestled with in the research for the book. It's look at all these figures, you know, they celebrate, you know, the prison breaks. They celebrate, you know, the murder of their opponents, the, the, the execution of police officers in cities. They planted bombs in the U.S. Capitol and at military headquarters and at police departments. They said the Chinese Cultural Revolution was a, a phenomenal great success. And, of course, it led to the death and uh, dismantling and expropriation of millions of people. And these intellectuals who are ensconced in very privileged positions in our society seem to have no problem celebrating these things as if they were intellectual objects of fascination and not actually 
a, a trail of, of death and destruction unleashed upon many innocent people and China and the Soviet Union and the, uh, the, the Marxist-Leninist third world countries and even in uh, American cities as we saw in the aftermath of 2020. Is it a question of evil? That's very tempting to say, well, these people are evil. These people are bad. Uh, these people are, are, de are destructive elements. I actually think that there's something more complex and more human happening is that these people are idealists who have been bruised and damaged by their experiences of their lives. They've clung to these um, uh, ideologies as, uh, as panaceas or as uh, cures for, for whatever is ailing them and whatever they see projected onto society. And that it really is truly a tragic turn that when their ideas spoil everything rotten, when their ideas unleash chaos, when their ideas um, end up uh, in, in, in mass graves, um, you, you look at these figures then and you say, you know, what has happened now that you've seen the consequences of your ideologies? And I think in most cases, what you see is um, contemptible people, pitiable people uh, who, who, who seek to deny, who seek to blind themselves to the, to the consequences of their ideas, and who seek to then maintain their own social status in a very cynical and self-serving way. And so at the end of the book, what I think you come away with is this sense of horror and pity uh, and, 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 and really a kind of macabre feeling that these are figures of death, um, and yet they see themselves still, despite all the evidence, as, as figures of life. Not everybody in these institutions, or not by a long shot, is the way you describe, although you can you 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 see the the types of people that you're talking about around. so how 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 did that happen exactly? so the, the, I think we can answer that by looking a, a bit more into the their their practical theory. So uh, they have the the, the the theoretical side that they try to operationalize. Um, and their actual practical political goals. And, and to be honest, um, they were remarkably successful at doing so. They said, we we're going to march through the institutions. We're going to find the weak and vulnerable points within those institutions. We're going to take them over, establish dominance, and then work outward from there to impose our ideology on the other component parts of those institutions. So they first captured the faculty lounge in the social sciences and humanities the soft places of the university where they were able to gain entry. They next captured the graduate schools of education that train all of the K through 12 teachers and issue certifications and such. Um, then they said, well, let's go into private life. Let's get into government bureaucracies and corporate bureaucracies through the HR departments. And then through the newly created diversity, equity, and inclusion departments. That's a perfect vehicle, vehicle through which to smuggle our ideology. And so they found all of these vulnerable points in American institutions. They captured them, they dominated them, they saturated them with ideology, and then they imposed their will on the other individuals and other programs and processes of these institutions, which were unfortunately unable to resist because the radicals of the new left trained themselves in the streets with knives, guns, bombs, uh, you know, disguises, sticks and batons. I mean, these were tough people. They had been trained for Marxist-Leninist revolution. And so they were able to really bowl over your genial you know, HR director uh, who has a wife and kids and uh, you know, some, some, uh, some hobbies on the weekend. They were able to just brutalize the kind of weak and passive 
you know, humanities professor that was occupying some third-rate department uh, at, at a, at a, at a second-tier state school. So that guy is easily uh, pushed aside. And so, and then they hire their friends, and then they hire their friends' friends, and then it becomes an orthodoxy. And so that process over decades creates an orthodoxy, creates a mechanism for enforcing the orthodoxy, and then creates a, a snowball effect where they're able to then take over some of the higher positions within these institutions. And even if they don't take them over directly, they're able to exert, exert enough pressure on, on what are fundamentally weak leaders of American institutions uh, that their will is done uh, either directly or indirectly through their proxies. Of these four characters that you profile, while in educational circles, uh, Paulo Freire is, of course, very, very well known. He's, I think he's the most cited, uh, you know, educational scholar uh, in those in those texts. But he's he's not known as to be a revolutionary figure, at least I think by most people, and maybe even some of the people who have been reading his work. So Paulo Freire, for those who are not familiar, is a a Brazilian neo-Marxist uh, theoretician of education. So he was uh, what is known as a critical pedagogist, applying the critical theories to pedagogy or the practice of teaching, in this case, in, in K through 12 schools, as we think of them now. And he was born in Brazil. He was uh, ejected from Brazil after a military coup. If you look at him now, Paulo Freire is the third most cited author in the social sciences. He's the number one most assigned text in graduate schools of education. And he is the single most influential theorist for American scholars of education practice that train classroom teachers. Um, and that is a shocking thing. But what's really lost and what I tried to convey in the book in, in, in great detail is the middle part. OK, he is a Brazilian neo-Marxist. He has the theory of critical consciousness, you know, the theory of knowledge, the oppressor-oppressor distinction, educating students into their own oppression so they can take revolutionary action. Okay, great, that's his basic theory. And then on the backside, and he's very influential in, in college campuses in the United States in 2020, 2023. But his life story um, is very interesting and very indicative because after he, was, he fled Brazil, he spent, uh, over the course of multiple decades, he traveled through third world countries in Latin America and Africa, advising Marxist, Leninist, revolutionary fighters and then governments on how to design their education programs. Paulo Freire was the one who said that the Cultural Revolution in China, he said this in the late 70s or early 80s, well after the record was known, he said it was the most genial solution of the century. So after the bodies were counted, uh, after the, 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 the kind of mass violence was documented, he still said it was good. And in his work in Africa, in the third world, working with Marxist-Leninist revolutionaries who had uh, you know, kind of uh, revolted against the colonial powers. Um, he, he was their lead education propagandist. And in one country where he worked most extensively and for which we have the greatest documentation, a country called Guinea-Bissau on Africa's West Coast, he was in charge of the educational programs. Um, he traveled in the country. He advised its revolutionary uh, dictator. Uh, he designed the pedagogical materials. He trained the teachers at, at, their, at their kind of schools of education, kind of rudimentary. But scholars went back into the archives and said, well, did Paulo Freire's theories actually work? And they discovered something shocking, maybe, uh, uh, or, or maybe poetic. They discovered that his theories, in effect, taught nobody how to read. They were totally unsuccessful in teaching any of these 
poor people in this third world country how to gain basic literacy. And so his work functions as propaganda, but doesn't provide knowledge, doesn't provide education, doesn't even provide basic literacy. And so then the question is, wait a minute, if he is working with third world Marxist Leninist dictators, he has total control over the system, he implements his system and it teaches nobody how to read. Why are we following his ideas in the United States today? And that's a very important question that has to be answered. I mean, it, not only are we following them, I mean, that's kind of the bedrock of the educational system in a way, isn't it? In some ways, you could say that. It is the implicit ideology of many of the graduate schools of education, and it has absolutely trickled down into the pedagogies and curricula in uh, many uh, K-12 systems around the country. I think he's actually directly cited still to this day in California's model ethnic studies curriculum. I, I believe he, he was at one time during certain drafts the first citation uh, as the kind of inspiration uh, for the California's new statewide uh, 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 kind of racialist curriculum. And so uh, he is a pivotal figure in American life and he is a hidden figure in American life. Maybe Angela Davis was the most well-known for people of a certain age, but, but these are what I think of as the hidden rulers of American life. With the exception of Angela Davis, they're all deceased now, but their ideas live on with our institutions. And so I think it's important to actually excavate them. None of them, with the exception of Freire in, in, in an academic text, none of them have received biographical treatments. Quite strange. And so for the first time, I've packaged their biographies, I've packaged the intellectual uh, transmission of their ideas, and I've packaged the reporting showing how they've impacted American society today in this cohesive story that outlines uh, the spread of these ideas, the influence of these ideas, and the consequences of these ideas. How many people do you think are these people that either believe this or cynically participate? I think it's a very small percentage of people who are true believers. I would estimate as, as a napkin estimation, you know, somewhere between two and 3% of people are really true believers in this, these sets of ideas. I think there's another 20, 30% that are sympathetic towards it, um, maybe somewhat hesitant or cautious with its implementation, but, but more or less aligned in a passive sense, supporting it, um, agreeing with it, while maybe not fanatically engaged with it on a day-to-day -day basis. And then I think there's another 20 or, or sometimes 30%, depending on the season, of people who are um, agnostic, maybe, maybe sympathetic, uh, hesitant in equal parts, um, uh, but in moments of great cultural pressure will conform to it. And so that's when they get the majority of people in, the early, in those key moments of 50%, 55%, 60%, um, especially in, in big cities, if you want to segment it out to, to uh, urban metro areas. And, and that's why you get, you know, as BLM took on prominence, and especially in 2020, these massive marches, these institutions pledging their support, um, uh, you know, uh, all of the uh, local institutions conforming to it. It's not that all of these people are true believers. It's that the true believers can persuade a, a significant minority of, of passive believers. They can get them activated um, in, in key moments where the narrative is driving, uh, driving that support. And then they can essentially bully, coerce, 
intimidate or force conformity among that middle section of the population that is maybe not even supportive, but uh, under, under, under the required pressure, under the necessary pressure, uh, would, would, would shift uh, and at least signal support. Um, and so I think that's really the concentric circle of how it works and you know, how much is true believer versus how much is cynical. Uh, I, I think that the further we get from the 1960s, the greater percentage is an actual cynical belief. And, and I, I'm, I'm persuaded by looking at the evidence, by talking with people, that most of the people occupying elite institutions that advocate for these ideas are doing so with at least a strong admixture of cynicism. And then the other piece is, uh, you know, bureaucracy. And this is, I find this element really particularly fascinating because we live in a much more bureaucratized society than we did however many years ago. And this, somehow this this ideology of this approach kind of fits well in with 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 bureaucracy. Somehow it, it, it works well. Did, did you notice this? I, I, absolutely, and that's really been their greatest success is to figure out how to manipulate bureaucracy, how to saturate bureaucracy with ideology, and how to transform bureaucracy from a neutral arbiter of the public good to a partisan political force. And they've done that with universities, they've done that with government agencies, they've done that with K through 12 schools, they've done that with parts of corporations, although not all of corporations, meaning the kind of DEI apparatus within corporations. And, and, and so they are savvy and sophisticated in shifting those incentives um, to, to make it more likely that people will support their political objectives. And so you see this in a very rudimentary way, a very obvious way, a very visual way. Um, something like faculty hiring in universities, where they have explicit uh, documents now that merit is a white supremacist myth, um, that ob objective measurement of candidates uh, is uh, perpetuates you know white normative society, which should be which should be uh, 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 subverted, um, and that you should award faculty designations at least in significant part based on the group identity characteristics of individual applicants. So affirmative action, racial quotas, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so this is a very obvious system of incentives. Um, if you look this way, if you think this way, um, no matter how bad your scholarship is, no matter how poor your credentials are, um, we're going to tip the scales in your favor. And so what you get is people who otherwise might not even try to um, identify as such or, or present themselves as such ideologically. And this is obvious to anyone who's been through academia. Um, if I want to get this job, I have to write a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement. The people reading this statement are going to be uniformly left-wing. And so therefore, even if I'm, say, an unfavored or disfavored racial category or sex category, if you're a European-American male, you know, you're at a huge disadvantage uh, uh, demographically for these jobs, I have to write a groveling DEI statement professing my worship for uh, the totems of, 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 of intersectionality. And if I do that, and if I profess the faith, then I might be able to, you know, pretty please, you know, get the job. And so these are rampant. These are widespread. These are significant. And, um, and I think that this is uh, actually immensely destructive for our society. So let's let's think a little bit about you actually in, in your book, you propose that there needs to be a counter revolution, which I think is a bold, bold statement. And you identify two 
Achilles heels, so to speak, in this ideology, which for a lot of people, like we've been describing, um, even though they might not be aware that there is some sort of cultural revolution, at the, at the same time, there's something that's really changed profoundly in society. What are the Achilles heels? I think there are two uh, cr critical uh, vulnerabilities here. One is that whenever these ideas gain power, their practical consequences are visibly uh, uh, counterproductive or visibly uh, yielding uh, uh, negative results. So when BLM says defund the police and it gains power in institutions with that message and then they actually pull back policing or reduce police force or shut down a jail, um, you see an explosion in crime, violent crime, murder, mayhem, fear. The public feels that these ideas are not working. And so ultimately these ideas don't work. That's an important thing and that creates an opportunity. And the second, the second Achilles heel and really the most important on the solution side is that these ideas are, are more often than not um, never obtained democratically. And so when there's a, a massive DEI bureaucracy in um, public universities in Texas, when they're teaching critical race theory in K through 12 classrooms in Oklahoma, um, uh, voters have not approved this. They have not asked for this. They have not elected representatives who have advocated for this. All of this is achieved undemocratically, anti-democratically in an extra parliamentary manner, meaning they're marching through the institutions, they're imposing the, their ideology without the consent of the governed, without the express support uh, through the democratic means. And, and what this means is that there is a discrepancy between the desires of voters in, in, in a democracy, in a republic, and the, the ideology of, of the bureaucracies that are supposed to serve the public interest. Savvy conservative politicians will highlight this discrepancy, will, will, will ruthlessly attack uh, this discrepancy, will villainize the bureaucracy and elevate uh, stories that illustrate this, this phenomenon in a compelling way for the public. And then they will marshal the democratic majority and democratic sentiments, translate it into legislative language to reform these institutions, to get rid of CRT, to get rid of gender pseudoscience, to get rid of DEI bureaucracies, to get rid of left-wing racialist ideology within the public institutions. And then they'll pass those, uh, uh, those pieces of legislation, those reforms, those, those methods of institutional recapture and reorientation through the democratic process, they'll have the democratically elected executive sign it, and then they will truly say, um, uh, in a republic, the people decide what the public institutions will be doing. The people have now decided through their duly elected legislators uh, that this is not a priority. This, the, 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 the governors do not consent uh, to this kind, of, this kind of system of public administration, and we're going to now, through democratic force, reform these institutions and, and make sure that they serve the public interest and reflect the values of the public. So is this really counter-revolution? <laughs> I think that it is, yeah. And I think that it is because of something quite simple, even just a verbal um, uh, mirror or verbal uh, 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 symmetry. If we are really facing America's cultural revolution, if you believe that, after reading the book, I think most readers uh, uh, would, would be persuaded that that is the case, that's what's happening. You can't merely uh, oppose a counter-revolution with um, incremental reforms, with um, you know, small changes to, to policy, with a single election. You actually have to have a movement, a political movement that takes, its, takes the revolu counter-cultural revolution seriously, 
and has a solution that matches the scope, scale, and force of the revolution. And in my view, that is only, uh, uh, can be accurately summarized or encapsulated in the phrase counter-revolution. You expect uh, or you, you advocate for there being a kind of a, I mean, I sort of mirrored it in the, count, the counter-revolutionary sense as a vanguard of people to kind of guide the rest of society, which really reminds me of the, the other system that we've been talking about. It makes, makes me suspicious of that approach. And I guess I want to hear what you think about that. This is how politics has always worked, uh, how it works now, and I think how it will always work. Um, uh, the, the, the big Marxist myth um, is that the somehow the, you know, the, the proletarians will spontaneously rise up as a, as a group and take over and, uh, and govern the society totally horizontally without a hierarchy, without leadership. Um, that, that, that's that's uh, just not how societies work and on neither the left nor the right. We have congressmen that lead their districts, that lead the citizens of their districts. Um, they're elected by those citizens. We have the president who runs a campaign to convince the entire country, you know, 300 plus million uh, citizens uh, to, to, to support uh, his, his program, his vision for the country, his administration. He chooses 4,000 people to staff the administration. And so we need leadership. And vanguard is a dirty word because it's associated with uh, Lenin, who, of course, uh, used a vanguard to, 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 to abuse um, uh, the population and terrorize the population. And he was espousing, of course, um, uh, um, some truly uh, vicious and, and horrific uh, ideologies. But leadership, if we just take a more neutral term, is required on the right. Um, new ideas, uh, new platforms, new, new campaigns, new policies, new think tanks. Um, new education programs, new universities. Um, these are not going to be founded, um, kind of materializing from the from the ground, you know, from the earth. Uh, these are going to be conceptualized by by talented, motivated, high capacity people with uh, uh, high, con high high tolerance for risk, high tolerance for confrontation, strong backbone. And so, those are the kind of people that we need to be cultivating. We need to be uh, uh, training and recruiting. We need to be putting into positions of leadership. If we're going to have a chance uh, to, to, to create the institutions that are going to do justice to the people who are who are really deserve good institutions. I was recently speaking with uh, Matt Taibbi on this show and he expressed something that that concerned me a lot. He said something that he's a lot more worried about than let's see, the changes in institutions, so to speak, is a kind of a, a possible dying of the American spirit. Yeah, definitely, yes. And I think that these are related phenomenon because uh, related phenomena because these ideologies, these bureaucracies, these institutional changes are antithetical to the American spirit. I'd like to see institutions that um, support the American spirit, that conform to the American spirit, that provide the means of expression of the American spirit. Um, and so... To me, these are questions that go hand in hand. You can't have your, all of your major institutions be enemies of the American spirit and then expect that uh, uh, and be surprised that that spirit is somehow diminished. Um, this is something that is very concerning uh, and, and I think you know, deeply related. So one of the things that I've become very aware of over you know, basically trying to study this, this whole phenomenon over the last however many years is how powerfully we are affected by 
various tools out there that act to create perceptions of consensus around issues. For example, you have these new powerful tools of, of media, social media, um, AI, and so forth. This is, this is a very new phenomenon. And it, I guess in this context, how do you think we can counter that for those of us who, of course, are looking for a uh, you know, free future based on rule of law and the American spirit? I think that we have to go in and, and, and recapture institutions. I think that conservatives need to summon the spirit of governance again, of statesmanship again. Uh, we, we, we need to um, actually have the, 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 the strength and the confidence and courage to govern. And we've been, I think, lulled to sleep by libertarian fantasies that somehow the moral choice is to, um, to, 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 to not to govern, uh, to seek the end of governance, to, to opt out of institutions, to condemn the government as something that just must be, must be diminished in size, but, not to, not that, but that does not merit our active participation. This is insanely destructive. Um, we need people who are going to you know, run companies, run the, the functions of government, uh, run universities and colleges. Conservatives cannot merely retreat to private business, Private, uh, private life um, and think that they're going to have a country that reflects their values. Um, conservatives have to get out of the corner and if they really want to have AI or tech companies that, that are, that are you know, advancing uh, or at least consonant with their values, um, they have to start venture capital firms. They have to speak out more loudly. They have to found new companies. They have to pass laws uh, within legislatures. And so, um, I actually, at the end of the day, don't believe that the, the left is the greatest problem for the right. I believe that the right is the greatest problem for the right. And it's only self-limitation uh, that is our ultimate limitation uh, in, 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 really in any way. And so conservatives um, who want to see a certain kind of future must be willing to actually take the risks and have the courage to build that future. Well, Chris Ruffo, a final thought as we finish? Uh, I, I hope everyone who's been listening might uh, uh, purchase a copy of the book. It debuted last week on the New York Times bestseller list. It's driving conversation, and it will give you really a key to understanding uh, the, the, the origins of the modern left and, and how it has deranged our institutions uh, in recent years. So I appreciate the time. Great to talk to you again. Thank you all for joining Chris Rufo and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. 